Uh, so that we turn in our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll be looking at the third verse. We saw last week the writer giving a characterization of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is a conviction of things not seen, he says. And then he set forth the commendation of faith in that he says, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And this morning, verse 3 of our text says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I want to consider this morning faith in relation to our world. Hebrews chapter 11 is all about the critical importance of faith in the life of the Christian. And to the skeptic, faith is simply regarded as a crutch for the weak and uninformed. It's regarded as a mindless coping device device used by religious fanatics to handle the puzzling questions and challenges of life. As they see it, the whole idea of faith is simply nonsensical. It is basically too simplistic. But the fact is, nothing could be further from the truth, from the truth for whether or not they believe it. Every single human being, to some degree or another, exercises faith in something or another. It was the famed G.K. Chesterton who once put it like this. He says, quote, When a man ceases to believe in God or gods, he doesn't believe in nothing, he believes in anything. You see, that's how we are wired. We are, as one writer puts it, inexorably religious. Even the atheist, in some way or another, exercises faith. We all exercise faith in one way or another. Now, as we saw last week from Hebrews chapter 11, 1 and 2, faith is the assurance and conviction with respect to things hoped for. Understood, of course, in the context of the epistle as those promises, those declarations that are given us in the word of God. Faith is assured of these unseen realities. Why? Because they derive from God for whom it is impossible to lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. And as such, faith, we would say, is neither subjective make-believe nor a blind, irrational leap into the unknown. As one author puts it, faith is not a blind leap into darkness, rather a confident step into an unknown circumstance supported by the solid rock of the word of God. Now in verses 3 to 8, 38, the writer sets out to establish such faith that such faith will influence one's life, impacting one's attitude, one's outlook, one's actions, one's decisions. And here in verse 3, the truth we want to consider this morning from verse 3 
is that through faith we make sense of the world. Through faith we make sense of the world. By faith we understand, the writer says, the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. Faith, the writer is saying, brings us to the realization, it brings us to the understanding that this visible material universe has an explanation. That it was not self-generated, springing out of nowhere, but that through the creative power of the word of God, it had its genesis, its beginning in God who created it, out of things which are invisible. Now from time immemorial, there are those who have come up with all kinds of theories, all kinds of speculations as to how this world, how this universe came about. In fact, every culture from antiquity to modern times has some theory, some explanation as to the origin of the world. There are Sumerian, Akkadian, and Egyptian creation myths, to name a few. According to some of these ancient Near Eastern myths, the world emerged from chaos and conflict through competing gods and occult forces. In modern times, of course, there's a theory of evolution. And rejecting any idea of a creator God, the theory of evolution basically says that over a period of millions or even billions of years, the world evolved through a process of what they describe as random, spontaneous generation. Evolution, in my estimation, might well be termed evolution. Because, you see, it clearly has this idea, this way of thinking that is contrary, that is hostile to the ways of God and his word. Evolution at its core is evil because it rejects the claim of the inspired, infallible word of God. So as to gain academic respectability, there are some Bible scholars who embrace what is known as theistic evolution. As John Blanchard explains, theistic evolution basically says that while God remains the personal creator of the universe, he used and still uses the process of evolution to carry out his entire program, including the development of the human race. And we ask the question because there are, of course, respectable theologians, scholars who subscribe to this, which I think is a big mistake. The question is, what's wrong with theistic evolution? And among other things, we could say that it contradicts the clear teaching of the Word of God, particularly the Genesis narrative, the creation narrative, which clearly establishes that God ended his work in seven days. And mark you, seven solar days, not vast eras or ages of time. At the end of the day, none of these and other human explanations for the origin of the world 
are satisfactory, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is, you see, none of us was there around at the beginning when it all happened. And what's more, there's no footprint, so to speak, no remaining evidence that's available to you and me today that can help us to reconstruct the event of creation. We just were not there. We do not know exactly what happened in scientific analytical terms. So regarding the origin of the world, the coming into being of the universe, we necessarily have to believe in the reality of divine creation. And let me say this, we have to believe that for at least two reasons. Reasons number one is this, that the event of creation was a miracle. If it, if it was not a miracle, if it is not the case that it was a miracle, then evolution has some validity. Creation was a direct miracle by the living almighty God of heaven. The creation of the world occurred once. It is non-repetitive and it occurred by the supernatural power of the living God. So that we do not get to put the event of creation through scientific investigation, through scientific analysis, through scientific uh, observation in a laboratory so as to prove or disprove the biblical claim of creation. And that is why, beloved, that is why, brethren, the truth of creation requires faith to believe. And what's the basis of such faith? This brings us to our second reason why we must believe in divine creation. And it is this, we necessarily have to believe in the reality of divine creation because God explicitly claims responsibility for the creation of this world. God directly in his word takes responsibility. He makes the claim that he was the one who was responsible for bringing into being the universe. He himself has made a declaration in this regard. Here's what he says in Isaiah 45 and verse 18. Jeremiah is reporting the word of the Lord, and Jeremiah says this for Isaiah rather, and he says this, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord, and there is none other. Regarding creation in these verses, God makes an authoritative sevenfold claim. Seven, they say, is the number of perfection. God takes the number seven and he makes seven authoritative declarations here in this passage. And the first declaration God makes is this. Number one, he created the heaven. He created the heaven. And what is significant is this, that the Hebrew word there for create, bara, is used only in connection with God. The verb bara in the Hebrew Bible is never used in connection with human activity. The word speaks of producing something from scratch, as we would say, of bringing about that which before did not 
exist. Technically speaking, we talk today of artists with their creation, their works of art, and they create this music and, the, and so forth, and, and, and on and on. Technically speaking, here's the point. Whereas man makes things, he never creates anything. Man does not have the raw material to create anything. Only God creates. And that word creates signifies the fact that God calls into being things that never existed before. Second, God claims that he formed the earth. And by the way, you will notice different verbs are being used. What is suggested there, you see? is that God did not have a monolithic way in which he went about creation. Psalm 33 will say this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. But we also know this, God, when it came to man, God, as it were, stooped down, he molded the dirt, and he made man. We know this also, he took a rib from Adam, and he made the woman. So here are the various verbs that are used to describe God's creative activity. First of all, he created. That is, from scratch, he brought this universe in, in, into existence. Then he says he formed the earth. He formed the earth. Then, thirdly, he made it, Asa. Then he established it, number four. And then notice what he says. The fifth thing, God created it not as emptiness. He did not create it as emptiness, which is to say he created this earth with purpose and with meaning. God did not bring this world into a helter-skelter state of affairs. God brought this universe into order. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? Every person here should know what the Greek word cosmos means. Cosmos is the word from which we get our English word. We talk about cosmos. It's transferred in English, right? Cosmos is a Greek word for world. And it is the word from which we get our English word cosmetic. I tell you why we use cosmetic, especially ladies. Why do ladies use cosmetic? Because if they don't use it, you know what happens? <laughs> it's chaos. Don't mean to be offensive, right? But here's a point. Here's a point. That's why we do it. Right? God created this world not as chaos. By the way, the, the near, ancient Near Eastern myths, especially like Babylonian, the Enuma Elish, describing creation activity, has creation coming about out of eternal chaos as competition between occult forces. And the word of God reveals God taking time to bring this world, this universe, into being in an orderly, systematic fashion, conveying the message that this earth, as God intended it, was not meant to be emptiness, waste. He created it purposefully and meaningfully. Let me say this. That is why people who subscribe to evolutionary ideas and see how that outworks itself in our society, look at the pessimism that we have, look at the culture of death that we have. It is because a biblical worldview is not in the mindset of 
people in our time. Our education system has this whole idea of evolutionary thinking. It affects our sociology, and it affects even, guess what, our laws. We are having chaos in our world today. Why? Because of evolutionary thinking. We have lost our sense of purpose. Why? Because we have not acknowledged the God of creation, the God of order, the God who established this world meaningfully and purposefully. And then the sixth thing God says, he formed the earth to be inhabited. He formed the earth to be inhabited. That's why we can't have abortions. God wants this earth to be populated. He wants this earth to be peopled. He formed the earth to be inhabited, he says. Here we have again the concept of design, the concept of purpose. And then notice the seventh thing that God does. Like those ancient monarchs, who after making authoritative statements, whether in writing or in speech, notice what God does. He puts his seal to these declarations by asserting in clear, unambiguous terms, I am the Lord and there is none other. To speculate then about the origin of the world while dismissing God's claim of having created it then begs this question, if God did not create it, who then did? If not God, who then? And since the living eternal God claims responsibility for the origin of earth and heaven, the question becomes whose report, whose claim will we believe? That of agnostic and atheistic scientists and philosophers or that of the living almighty God who did it? As is often said, it takes far more faith, far more faith, to believe that the universe came about by spontaneous random processes that it takes to believe in the plain, matter-of-fact declaration of the word of God that the living almighty God brought this world into existence. As they say, the likelihood of the universe coming into being by spontaneous random processes by the process of evolution is, com is comparable to a monkey tapping away at a typewriter and in the end producing a multi-volume Encyclopedia Britannica. Now somebody says this morning, there you go about talking, you go about talking about faith and you're really talking in a circular fashion. You're talking about accepting by faith that this world were created, and you even said that none of us was there. That's a cop-out, you say. That's too simplistic of you. Well, as we said earlier, whether or not they realize it, every single person has, to some degree or another, faith. They exercise faith. Listen, evolutionary people, they exercise faith. It's faith in a belief system. And it is faith in a belief system that works itself out even in our institutions, in our schools, in our laws. The truth, beloved, is this, that like the biblical claim of divine creation, the claim of evolution is itself based on faith. 
It takes a lot of faith to believe that, you know, that this world, all of a sudden, spontaneously, bam, something went into motion. And the big question we have to ask, what caused the bang? What brought about that first organism? Biblical faith, the biblical claim of creation is based on faith in the word of God. But as clearly established in scripture, biblical faith, and we pointed this out last week and it bears repeating again, biblical faith is not, is not blind, baseless belief. Faith, according to the word of God, does not operate in a vacuum. Faith doesn't come out of our heads. It doesn't come out of our imagination. First of all, and we're going to make two declarations concerning biblical faith. And watch this. First of all, we see in scripture that biblical faith is rooted in the word of God. Biblical faith is rooted in the word of God. We read in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing what? By the word of God. In other words, faith grounds itself on the reality that there is a living God who has spoken. And as the word of God, scripture informs us in Genesis 1 verse 1, in a matter-of-fact manner, without any kind of explanation, it takes it for given, it takes it for granted, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the word of God. And the writer is saying it is through faith that we understand that. In other words, faith, biblically-based faith, places us, it puts us in a disposition whereby we are able, notice he didn't use the word no, we are able to understand, to perceive that yes, this is the work of God. Why? Again, because it's not coming out of our heads or our imagination, it is coming out of the objective reality of the word of God. So biblical faith, number one, is rooted in what God has said. But secondly, here's the point. Particularly as it relates to the truth of creation, the creation of the world, biblical faith is ratified by what God has shown. So number one, biblical faith is rooted in what God has said. Number two, biblical faith is ratified by what God has shown. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Psalm 19 verse 1. Here's what the psalmist says. He says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky, the firmament above, proclaims his handiwork. We look at the magnificence, the vastness of the skies, the stellar bodies. And we are left in wonder. And here's a person who is going to say, this all came about by chance. It came about spontaneously. No, no, no. I don't have that kind of faith. This creation, this world, this that they call nature, behind this world is the imprint of the glory and power of Almighty God. We read in in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. God's invisible attributes. 
namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that people are without excuse. Do you know that every culture, without exception, from antiquity, has this notion of a superior power whether or not they want to call it God, it is something bigger than they are. And where is this knowledge from? How is this knowledge derived? Among other things, of course, as they look around common sense, and that common sense comes from whom? From God, according to Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. God has made it known to them. He has shown in creation his invisible attribute, his power, his deity, so that men are without excuse. By the way, you know that our word culture, our English word culture, from the Latin cultus, you know what it means? It means worship. Every society has a culture. Every, every society has a system of worship. You say, but many societies don't have churches. They don't have mosques. But here's the point. Every society worships something. You see, culture, worship is what we value. Worship is what we value. We value God. Some people value entertainment. That's their culture. That's what they worship. Sports. Personality cult. There again you have the word culture. See? And it is, as we said, implanted in the human soul, in the human psyche, that behind this world is a supernatural divine power, which the Bible tells us is the living God. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 19, God has placed in man this awareness of his imprint in creation, and as such, God's communication to man concerning his creation is evidence not only in creation, we would say, but in the very conscience of man. God communicates the truth of creation, not only in creation itself, but in the conscience, the heart and consciences of men. So that true biblical faith in the account of creation is not a purely subjective, speculative manner, but confident trust in the objective reality of God and his word. You see how this thing works? Now, just as there have, been, there have been various explanations for the origin of this world, how this world came into being, so there are various arguments aimed at proving the point that God created this world. There are, there are at least four arguments concerning, and some of you are familiar with them. I'll just list two of them. There is what is known, first of all, as the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument argues from cause and effect, and it makes the point that there has to be an ultimate first cause. In other words, what caused this, okay? What, then what caused this? And you keep going back, and you keep going back, and you keep going back, which evolution cannot explain what caused the first, the initiation of the process. And the cosmological argument, reasoning, arguing from cause and effect, makes this point that there has to be then an ultimate first cause. There has to be a first mover. Then there is the teleological argument. 
And with the observation that there is design in the universe, and it's very clear to anyone will look that there is design in the universe, you look and you discover that things are not arranged in a helter-skelter fashion. Seasons are regular. There's symmetry, there's order. You look at beautiful flowers, different shapes in terms of material objects. Things serve different purposes. And the teleological argument posits there must be then a designer. Let me say this. These things are useful, right? But I want to make the point this morning based on the suggestion of the word of God. That as impressive as these arguments are, as impressive as these various arguments for the existence of God are, they do not conclusively and definitively prove that the world was created by God. You see, the moment we talk about proving that the world was created by God, we have to ask this question. To whom are we trying to prove this? And that's the first problem we have to deal with. You know, there's an anecdote of a man who was plagued with obscene thoughts. And he went to a psychologist. He wanted help. And the psychologist took out a picture of a beautiful mountain. He says, what do you see and what do you know? Consistent with this man's obscene way of thinking, he told the man what he saw, the psychologist what he saw. And then he would show him images of a mountain, beautiful lakes, and etc., etc. At each step of the way, what do you see? Man reported, I see this, that, 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 obscenities. To which a psychologist replied, here's what the psychologist said to him, Sir, you are sick. You have a depraved mind. Your mind is filthy. In response to which the man remarked, but you are the one who keeps showing me dirty pictures. Now, we laugh at that, right? But when it, here's the point that I'm making. There's, a point, there's somewhere I'm going with this. And the point that I'm making is this, that when it comes to man's reaction to the truth of God's word, of God's truth about God's word, and particularly the truth about his creation of the world, we have very much the same principle at work. And a useful scripture for us to write down is Titus chapter 1 verse 15 which says this, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That's what the Bible says. There are some people, regardless of what you show them, that is why today, my friends, people can look with a straight face. You can ask the question, what is a woman? And they don't know. People today can make bizarre statements in the face of clear truth and they can turn the truth upside down, twisting the truth. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying. Listen to Romans 1 verse 8. Paul is talking about creation, God in relation to creation. Look at what Paul is saying. Romans 1.18, men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Don't we see that today? Men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They don't want God. 
They do everything to stomp out the name of God, the name of Christ. They do everything to stomp out the word of God, to put away Bibles. Romans 1 verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Listen verses 21 to 23. Here's, here we come. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's why people today worship the environment over above the God of the environment. You see where we are? Verse 28, they did not see it fit to acknowledge God. So if we talk about proving the existence of God, here's the point that I'm making. Even in the face of clear truth, people will what? Reject it. They'll reject it. Why? Because they have a prior commitment to a sinful, ungodly lifestyle. Their deeds do not permit them, the prophet Hosea says, to turn to God. I think that might be Hosea 5.15, not sure. So that one of the reasons why arguments aim at proving that the world was created by God do not in and of themselves prove the point. People can actually come to the place where they believe wholeheartedly the lie. You know that? I believe it is very much possible. Listen, you listen to how people talk today. They, they have to be either of two things. Either dishonest or duped. They either have to be outright lying or they have become so blinded and hardened that they can turn the truth of God, twist the truth of God, pervert the truth of God, and reject the God of creation. You see, in their rebellion against God, sinful human fallen beings will choose to see something other than the clear revelation of God in creation. Again, here's a point we want to make. Because creation, the event of creation was supernatural, because it was a miracle, it falls outside the realm of human rational analysis and proof. That's why, properly speaking, we can't prove that God exists. We cannot prove that God exists, but we can rationally argue to show the reasonableness of believing in God. And so for us to really appreciate the truth of the origin of the world, we must, we must, we must listen to, and we must believe the one who was there when it all began. We must have faith in the word of the one who was responsible, who claims responsibility for bringing the universe into existence. 
He it was who created the heavens and the earth. He it was who created the various laws of nature, which form, of course, the basis of true legitimate science. Let me just say this, that true science, you see, it doesn't contradict the Bible. There are people who have the view that somehow the Bible, they say it's pre-scientific, and therefore it's not really up to date in terms of science. Let me say this, this book is way advanced, beyond the claims of science. Long before modern science, the Bible made certain declarations that accord with physical science. Science as we know it in our time. In accordance with Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9, we affirm by faith that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, for he spoke, and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. By faith we affirm that through the pre-incarnate word of God, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the universe was created. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, John 1 verse 3 tells us, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, every single thing we can look at, and even every single thing that we can't look at, things that are invisible, he created them. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So here's the point. Having created this world, he claims this world, he controls this world, and guess what? He's going to someday complete the program of this world. So in closing, let's ask this question. So what? God created the heavens and the earth. By faith we accept that, so what? The question is, what are the implications of faith in divine creation? And let me give you some suggestions. Number one, God's creative act in bringing the world into existence defines, here it comes, it defines and distinguishes him as the true and living God. God's divine activity in creation defines him and it distinguishes him as the true and living God. You'll find this reiterated throughout scripture. You'll notice, for example, in a polemic against idols, the idols, the false gods of the heathen. God's word to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10, 11 through 16 were as follows. Here's what God through the prophet Jeremiah said. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's tumult in the waters. And he makes mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. (laughs) That's our time. In relation to creation, that's what the prophet is saying. Long ago, the prophet said that every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols for his images are false. 
and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. None like these is he who is a portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is a tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Throughout scripture, God is distinguished and defined by the fact that he, as the living God, created this world. In fact, that is what defines him as the living God, because the idea of the living God means that he has life in himself, and that from him all life derives. Secondly, what's the implication of believing that this world came into existence by the word of God? Here's the implication. Very, very important. It means this, that God controls nations just as much as he controls nature. God controls nations just as much as he controls nature. Psalm 66, 6 and 7. He turned the sea to dry land. They passed through the rivers on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch of the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. These words presuppose that he's the God of creation. Acts 17, 24, in an evangelistic sermon, Paul appeals to this idea that by virtue of God being the creator of nature, he's therefore Lord of the nations. Here's what he says, God, Acts 17, 24, who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. Indeed, as the creator, God is the one who oversees the entire universe. He oversees kings and kingdoms. He oversees peoples and nations. Why? Because through him, they were brought into existence. Which means this, that he is Lord over all things, over all entities, over all peoples, celestial and earthly. It means that all are accountable to him. Men and angels are accountable to him. As a function of his lordship, having created this world, it means all of life is his. Because Acts 17.25 tells us he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves, the psalmist declares in Psalm 100 verse 3, so that at the end of the day, none of us has an exclusive right or claim to ourselves. So it's a lie, my body, my choice. It is almighty God from whom we derive our life that dictates and defines what life is, when life begins, and when life should end. He is the donor of life, and he is the disposer of life. In the third place, the fact that God created the world means this, that it demands reverential submission to him. The creation of the world signifies the fact, the creation of the world by God signifies the fact that due deference and reverence is to be paid to Almighty God. Psalm 33, 6 and 8, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Let all the earth fear the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. God is worthy of glory and honor by virtue of the fact that he created all things, and that by his will they are, and that they exist 
And our created Revelation 4.11 clearly says. Revelation 14.7, for fear God, give him glory and worship him who made heaven and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Here's the fourth implication. We're winding down. Because God is the creator of this world, because he called it to being this universe, means this, that life is purposeful and meaningful. Life is purposeful and meaningful. It means this, that our world is not governed by chaos and blind fate. Go back to Isaiah 45, verse 18. God said he did not create it empty. Tohu vabohu. He created it to be inhabited. Acts 17, 24, 27 tells us that the God who made the world and everything in it made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Here we see the purpose, the purposefulness and meaningfulness of the created order. Here we see that God not only purposefully created the world, but that he providentially orders human life on earth to the end that man, men might come to know him and fellowship with him. Listen, when we understand that this world is not out of control, notwithstanding the sin and the violence and the atrocities, this world is not totally out of control. Why? Because God has in check evil men and evil powers. They can only go so far. Imagine if God was out of the control. And God is able to do that. Why? Because he's creator, he's Lord of all. My friends, here's the point. If God did not create this world and not in ultimate control of this world, despite the grim reality of sin in our world, the chaos and confusion in our world, then with all the sufferings and tragedy we see around us, human existence and destiny, here's the point, is nothing but a sad, sick joke. Now, having said all that, we need to understand that there are problematic consequences for not accepting the truth that this world was created by God. There are problematic consequences. And let me say, suggest, first of all, and very quickly, failure to accept by faith God's creation of the world leads to ultimate rejection of God's authority over our lives. Remember, as we saw earlier, predicated upon God's lordship, or rather predicated on God's right to rule, is a fact of his being Lord. If we remove the idea of God creating this world, then human life becomes indispensable. All kind of craziness goes on. It means ultimately, not only are we going to lose reverence for human life, we're going to lose reverence for God. Secondly, the absence of faith regarding creation of the world by God necessarily means that there's no basis for trusting him and his word in all the various areas of life. Think of that for a moment. If we remove the idea that God created this world and that in so doing it manifests his almighty power, his almighty wisdom, it means this, that in the challenges and crises of life, 
There is no motivation. There is, after all, no basis for trusting in God because, after all, we are talking about a God who has been stripped of his deity and of his power and of his wisdom. How can we trust a God like that? And where there is no faith in God as creator of the world, it means this, that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartaches, in the midst of tragedies, there's no entrusting of ourselves to him as to a powerful and faithful creator, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. Finally, failure to accept by faith in God's creation of the world impinges This is critical, beloved. It impinges on the trustworthiness of the gospel. Do you know that creation is linked to the gospel? Paul tells us, among other things, in Romans chapter 8, that the whole creation is groaning right now. It's travailing in pain and is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God because creation itself is also going to be delivered from the bondage, from the corruption of sin. It's tied to the gospel. And as one writer puts it, quote, a rejection of creation is a denial of the gospel. When the gospel was preached, men were called to believe in a God who created. We see Paul doing that on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 14, verse 15, when the people of the city would come and wanting, want to worship the apostles, they said, listen, God who created the world, they appeal to God as creator, as the one who should be worshipped. Paul said to the people on Mars Hill, he says, God who brought this world into being, doesn't live in temples made it with hands. And he goes on to show how this God is someday going to call men into account. You, we cannot play with the doctrine of creation and claim the validity and integrity of the gospel. The writer says this, when a man denies special creation, they deny that God planned and executed redemption, Ephesians chapter 1, 3, and 4. Furthermore, to deny creation, cast reflection on Christ. Christ believed in Creation, look at his teachings, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He's talking about marriage, and he goes back to creation. And then he says this. If there is no creation, there is no foundation upon which to predicate the gospel plan of salvation. Because as I hinted earlier, the God who created this world and claims this world and controls this world has a plan to complete the program of this world. And all of that is tied to the gospel. This is important. The God of redemption is the God of creation. And praise God this morning. He created... And he has recreated. He has recreated you and me in Christ Jesus. Do you know him as your Savior and as your Lord? That's the question we need to answer this morning. You're not saved. You need to be saved. You need to come to him recognizing that he died on the cross and that his death on the cross was sufficient payment for your sins. Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, the children of God, even to those who believed on his name. Have you done that? May God grant that these things might be so in our lives, in your life, for his name's sake.